Well, I guess we can get started. We're uh, in chapter 8 of uh, 2 Samuel. Let me uh, give you a little bit of a, I shouldn't say a forewarning, but a a little bit of an understanding of what these chapters are now going to be doing in 9 and 10, setting us up for understanding why David does what he does in chapter 11. And that, uh, of course, is the horrible sin and the consequences of David the rest of his life and for the entire kingdom. We're not there yet. But what's doing, uh, what the author is doing in chapter 8 is helping us to understand, and that map that's on page 14 is a way to look at it, but how David acquires either direct conquest or by making these various nations pay tribute to his empire. Uh, how he basically constructs a kingdom that starts at Euphrates River and goes all the way down to the river at Egypt. He is, uh, he's dealing now with an issue in the north. And by the way, that river in Egypt is not the Nile. There's Wadi al-Arish that goes right, basically, it's still there today, but there's not much to it. That's the boundary. It's an amazing, it's an amazing kingdom. And he's making Israel into one of, this sounds terrible, I don't know how else to put it. Israel is now becoming one of the major powers of the Eastern Mediterranean world. And it's going to be a buffer between Egypt and uh, what will be the Assyrian and later Babylonian Empire in Mesopotamia. This gives you an idea of why God put his people in one of the most important pieces of real estate on planet Earth. Israel, as you look at a map, if you look at a big map of this whole year, it connects three continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. It is a bridge between those three continents, and it was strategic in the ancient world. That's why every empire wanted to control this, because there were two major international highways that went right through Canaan or Israel, and that it isn't that there's anything there of, of great There aren't riches there. There aren't tremendous gold mines or silver mines. They have now discovered natural gas in the Mediterranean off the coast. But there wasn't any value to it other than its geography. And that's why it was so strategic. So David makes this into not only a strategic center, but a powerful center. And he's neutralized all of the enemies. And what's happening in verse 9 is uh, what is in the north, and if you, you can see this on the map if you're interested, but when Toy, king of Hamath, and you can see Hamath, it's way up north. It's right on the edge of the map, this map. <clears throat> Heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadanezer. Toy sent his son Jerom to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadanezer, cheated him for Hadanezer, had often been at war with Toy. Jerom brought him the articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord. That's a very important phrase. This is not to increase his wealth. It goes into the treasury dedicated to the Lord. <clears throat> Together with the silver and gold that he had dedicated for all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, from the spoil of Hadonesa, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. Now that, that's just a very, very important cluster of sentences. Because it's summarizing for us, David has defeated or neutralized all of the historic enemies of Israel. And they either have been conquered or they're paying annual tribute to him. That is, into the treasury of Israel. So this is one of the reasons why Israel becomes so wealthy. 
And I want to remind you of something else. I mentioned this earlier. There were two international highways in Israel. One went up along the coast. Rome would call it the Via Maris, which is called the International Highway. Another one started down here in Arabia, went up along the east side, basically through the mountains of Jordan. That was called the King's Highway. And what David will do and what his son Solomon will really do, he'll tax. Everything that goes on these roads, he'll tax. Like we would maybe call like a toll or something like that. In order for you to in order for you to ship your goods on the road, which we now control, you gotta pay a toll, a tax. And this is one of the this is one of the numerous factors that explain why Israel within a generation becomes extremely wealthy. And why Solomon, which we will not study in this course, but why Solomon will use that wealth to fund a massive building program. He will build huge chariot cities. He will defend defensive centers in the south, defensive centers in the north. He'll build an enormous port down on the on the, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. Elat, it's called. It's a major port, and Israel will trade with India. It will trade with Africa. I mean, it's just an amazing thing for this tiny little speck of a country. It starts with David. And that's just summarizing that last sentence. Now, let's note one other thing. In verse 13, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now, the Valley of Salt is another reference to what today we call the Dead Sea. The Bible never calls it the Dead Sea. The Sea of Aqaba, the Sea of Salt. So he now controls what had been Eden. Do you remember who the Edomites were? They're the descendants of Esau, the, the brother of Jacob. And so now he controls. So notice what else he does. Then he put garrisons in Edom. For throughout all Edom, he built garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. So what that means, garrisons, he's a protective garrison. He's building a whole string of, we might call them like forts. So, I mean, I know we read through this quickly, but I'm trying to just impress upon you how significant this is. And so you look at a map like this, everything on the map, this map, it's on page four. Everything on the map, David controlled. Where, if you remember, when he was in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, he's fighting Goliath, and this was nothing. <laughs> they didn't control anything. Saul is losing parts of his kingdom. So, I mean, it's just it's an amazing thing because God is with David. David is following the Lord. He's in fellowship with the Lord. He's the shepherd king of Deuteronomy 17, personified. And all 15, 16, 17, 18, it just summarizes for us the bureaucracy he sets up. Because a kingdom now of this size is going to require a, a, you know, I use bureaucracy, I'm using a modern term, but you know what I mean. He has to have an administration to govern all this. So David reigned over Israel. He administered justice and equity to all his people. That's very important. There are the words of Deuteronomy 17. He's the shepherd king. Who will rule in justice and equity means he's fair. He's using talionic justice, the justice theme of the Bible, to govern his country. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over his army. He's the commander of Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihu, was his recorder. What does that mean? He's the secretary. He keeps the chronicles. Every king kept chronicles. Everything he did is recorded and written down. Some of that's in First and Second Chronicles. Well, first chronicles in terms of David. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. 
Second Chronicles tells us, excuse me, First Chronicles tells us in great detail, which we're not going to look at, but in great detail, how David organized the priesthood. Because he's brought the tabernacle to uh, Jerusalem, he's done Mount, uh, basically it's Mount Moriah, and so he's organizing, he sets up a choir. He sets up musicians to sing in the worship services of Israel. All of this is recorded for us in First Chronicles in great detail. Seruiah was his secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Jerathites and Pelethites. We've mentioned them before. They are David's bodyguards. They're David's bodyguards. And so you have one end of it. We do not know who he is other than his name here. And then David's sons were priests. Now, you have to go back a couple of chapters to see the list of all David's sons. That's that's a little confusing, but I, I know what the ESV is doing here when they translate this. What that really means, David's sons were priests. They're like chaplains. They're like chaplains in the military. They're not in the priestly line of Aaron and all that you see with the Levites. That's not what they are. They're, they're from Judah. But the important, they're like they're like royal advisory chaplains that serve throughout the kingdom, presumably some in the military, but also in terms of the government itself. And so what it means is they're, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to phrase this, they're like spiritual advisors representing the king. And so it's, a, it's extraordinary that he trusts his sons with that duty, with that responsibility. And so it's so short. I mean, it's, it's only a few verses. Please try again. Be quiet. <laughs> so um, I don't have to say this. What you see is David establishing his empire and David putting together a bureaucracy to administer and govern this empire. Because, I mean, you look at that map, that is a lot of territory. And you have people that that are of different ethnic backgrounds, in some cases, even some different languages. So, I mean, this is, David is shrewd, David is wise, but he's a good leader. And so the, the book of First Chronicles tells us a little bit more about the detail, as I mentioned, organizing the priesthood, organizing the choirs, organizing the instruments. They had, they, they had like orchestra in worship. Things that we don't even associate with the ancient world, but very much David is organizing all of this. And there's some evidence, uh, this is a little bit extra biblical, but there's some evidence that David begins to organize the hymn book. And the hymn book, of course, is the book of Psalms. David wrote at least 70, maybe as many as 73 of the Psalms. And they are, if you go back and study those, often it's a superscription. He has designed this psalm to be sung by the choirs. And I mean, it's just, it's really quite significant what David is doing here. He's doing what Saul did not do. He's neutralizing the enemies, bringing everything under his control, and he's establishing administrative authority over everything. He is a good ruler. So and he's the, the shepherd tribe, king of Israel. Was the tribe of Judah, did they have those components uh, initially? And their makeup, people that you're referring to different parts. Well, not not everybody is of the tribe of Judah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean the the thing that you can trace back into Genesis even is uh, 
just the individual Judah, the founder of that tribe. Judah emerges, because Judah was a rascal, he was a terrible man in Israel. He you know, went out and had sex with a Canaanite prostitute that later would be Tamar and all of that. He, he, was, he was ruthless. Uh, he would, but what you see in the theme of Genesis is how he repents and he gradually becomes a leader. Even his father, Jacob, near the end of his life, but we were studying that the other day in digging deeper cut. His father calls on him to do some leadership things. So Judah becomes, Judah himself and the tribe of Judah becomes kind of a, the key leadership tribe. And that's one of the things that's a problem because they're paying more and more preference to Judah and the other tribes become jealous of that, which is one of the reasons in 931 BC when Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. There's Judah and there's everybody else. Well, Benjamin joins with him. Anybody else. But we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves. And there's nothing genetic about it. You know, there's nothing genetic about it, but it was part of what had happened in the past with Judah himself. And then the success, Judah is emerging as a leader. And that's in Genesis 49, that is exactly what Jacob said. The scepter will not depart from your tribe, Judah. And of course, that is pointing eventually to Jesus, because he is of the tribe, head to Judah. How long did it take him to defeat all of the enemies? Because it had to be quite a long time to organize all that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. It it isn't happened in a year. This is over. It's over a period. It's really hard. I can't give you a definitive uh, timeline there because the Bible doesn't establish that for us. But it would it would be over the remaining years of his kingdom. Well, chapter eight is a summary. He doesn't do all of this in five days. This is a summary of what he does. I can't, the Bible does not give us a timeline on this and how how he did it in terms of time. He did this, and he's, it seems reasonable that a lot of this is happening at the same time. I mean, in terms of these various conflicts and things that he's doing in, in the enemies of Israel. But it's, um, it, it, is, it is, I mean, it's just an astonishing, when you understand the geography and you understand the geopolitical realities of the Mediterranean world 3,000 years ago, which is about when this is happening. It's amazing what he was able to do. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Move all those oh, troops or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, yeah. Feed them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Herds of animals. Absolutely. Exactly. It takes great, great strategies, great tactics to achieve those strategies, as well as people to carry it out and administer it all. I mean, you know, when you conquer something, that's only the beginning of your problems. Now you got to rule that area. You now you have to administer that area, and that's and that's that's why those four verses they're, they're frustratingly short. It just tells us what he did, and those guys that he is that the Bible is naming here, uh, they would have had tremendous responsibility in in doing what David wanted them to do. Fred, so in in. Um Verse uh, 13, where David made it, uh, striking down the Edomites and yep. the garrisons and yep. made them servants. Yep. The Edomites from Esau serving <clears throat> serving Jacob or David from the line of Jacob. That's right. And that's exactly what God had said would happen. That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. It's just fulfilling that. Exactly. Now, chapter 9 is a tender chapter. 
it, it's it's a, it's a wonderful chapter that exhibits the grace of David. Therefore, the grace of God through David. The year is 996 BC. We know that for certain. David is 45 years old. He began his rule as king when he was 30. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, kindness for Jonathan's sake? ESV translates that kindness is chesed. It's the loyal love of the covenant. Because he had made a promise to Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, Saul's son and all of that. He had made a promise to him. I will take care of your descendants. I will not wipe them out, which was typically, that's what happened in the ancient history world. The, the son of your successor who would be there, you kill him, and you kill all his descendants. So David says, is there anybody still living? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziva. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziva? Remember, the B in Hebrew has a V sound, so it's Ziva. That's how it's pronounced. And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is it not still among some of the house of Saul that I may show chesed, kindness of God to him? Ziva said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? Ziva said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So now we know the only surviving in the bloodline of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was Mephibosheth. He's the only one living. Again, typically in the ancient world, you'd kill him. That's not what David's going to do. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you chesed, kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you. This is an extraordinary benevolent statement. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, that's not just an acre. That's a significant, we have no idea how much it is, but that's a significant amount of land. And you shall eat at my table always. So two things there. One, Mephibosheth now gets the, so to speak, the inheritance of his grandfather, Saul. He gets his land. He gets his estate, if you want to call it that. And secondly, he'll now be in the court of David. He will be in Jerusalem. And every night he's going to have a steak from Omaha Steaks. It will be lush. It will be, and he's going to, that's incredible. And he paid homage. This is the, he is Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, what is your servant? that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I. And, I mean, in, in the ancient world, ancient Eastern world, a dog, you, you love dogs. We have pets. We spend billions of dollars a year on it. In the ancient world, dogs were scavengers. Nobody liked dogs. Very few had dogs as pets. They were regarded as scavengers. They ran in packs. 
And so he's, he's, he's saying very, very derogatory about himself. Such a dead dog as I. Then the king called Ziva, Saul's servant. Now that, that is really important. That this guy, Ziva, had an extraordinary role in the kingdom of Saul and was managing and benefiting from Saul's land. He had managed Saul's land. And he's benefiting from it. Now what happens? That all goes to Mephibosheth. And he said to him, all that belong to, this would be David speaking to Ziba, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziva had 15 sons and 20 servants. Now, the sense of this situation is that Ziva had managed and, and, and overseen all of the lands that belonged to Saul, had harvested them, and had benefited from them. There was no trust that Saul set up, that some bank or some financial management firm set up, and they're managing all this, and that, that money's going into the trust. No, it's going to Ziva. What's just happened by King David's decree? That now goes to Mephibosheth. And since the king's decreeing this, he can't resist that. We're going to see Ziva coming up later in the book. He's not going to be very kind to David. He's going to get some revenge on David, but that's coming up later. Then Ziva said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of David's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son. His name was Micah. You could put an H on the end of that. And all who lived in Ziva's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. It was a result of an accident when he was a young boy that the nurse that was caring for him in the, in the kingdom of Saul dropped him, and that's why he became a cripple. So chapter 9 is just an amazing chapter on grace. It's been often preached. I'm not sure that's the right way to preach it, but it's often been preached on this is the grace of God. This is the grace Jesus. And in one sense, that's true. But it's, it's also about David fulfilling a covenant promise to John. And that the key word, I, you know, every time I saw it in the text, I pronounced it as chesed in Hebrew. It's that covenant love, the love of the covenant he's showing to Mephibosheth because of his love and devotion to his friend Jonathan. And the other thing is to note, because this will be important for a, coming, a chapter coming up, how Ziva, who lost much in this transaction, and personally lost much, but he has no choice. He's got to do what the king says. He will get some revenge coming up uh, later on. Does David make that promise uh, to himself uh, when he saw John, or, or did he make that prior to his time? Prior. Oh, it, 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 several times. you got to go back into First Samuel to see it. But several, I think there were three times where David affirmed, uh, uh, made, and reaffirmed, reaffirmed that covenant promise of loyalty and devotion to Jonathan, even to the descendants of Jonathan. Uh, so he's fulfilling. He took that very seriously. Again, I, mean, the con you, I said it to you, and perhaps you already knew it, but the contrast between this and how everybody else in the ancient Near East world worked 
It's a significant contrast because every other king would kill all the descendants of the, of the, the heir to the previous uh, ruler. Okay. Now, chapter 10, uh, there's some a little bit arduous detail here we have to go through, but this is very important because it sets us up for chapter 11. A war starts in the kingdom of Ammon, A-M-M-O-N. And that war is, we're going to talk about why there was a war and what happens. And then we're going to start when we read chapter 11. We might get to it today. We'll definitely get to it in detail next week. David should be out with his troops laying siege to the city of Ramah, which we'll get to in a minute. Where's David? He's in Jerusalem. And he sees this woman, and that's what we'll get to in chapter 11. But chapter 10 sets us up for the detail of what unfolds in chapter 11. All right, that's why I want you to, this is why this is an important chapter. Okay. Now, again, I want to remind you of all that's happened. David now, basically, this map, David controls all this, or he's in the process of getting control of it. We're going to be talking about this area here, which is Ammon, right where my finger is. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. The Jordan River starts at the Sea of Galilee, goes down to the Dead Sea. So it's on the east side of the Jordan River. The Ammonites had been brought under submission to David. The Ammonites are paying an annual tribute into the treasury of David's empire. Okay? Now, after this, the king of the Ammonites died. So the way the text is, meaning after what David had just done with Mephibosheth. That seems to be the case. The king of the Ammonites died. Okay. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Okay? That's normal. And David said, I will deal loyally, kindly, with Hanun, the king of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. And David, that word that is loyally in the second part, as his father dealt loyal with me, that's chesed. The king of the Ammonites showed covenant loyalty to David as his king. That's a remarkable relationship. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father, to console Hanun, the new king, concerning his dad. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. And the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, to overthrow it? My goodness, that's, you know, what kind of advice is that? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, those acts mean absolutely nothing to you and me today. We know one thing typically at this point in history, men wore beards. That was the typical thing they did. And typically, their their outer garments was a, a long, <coughs> like a, a cape type thing that was long and flowing. It wasn't tight like mine with a belt and all that stuff. It was long and flowing. So what did this, what did Hanun do? 
he publicly humiliated these diplomatic ambassadors of King David. He cut off half their beard. That's shame. Doesn't mean anything to you and me today. It looks weird, but you know, it's shame. And then he cuts them off at the hip. So he cuts off the groom. So these guys are standing here from their crotch down with half their beard and sends them away. What has he just done? Hanum has publicly humiliated the diplomatic ambassadors of David, publicly insulted them, and he's broken the agreement between the Ammonites and Israel. This is publicly breaking that treaty, breaking that covenant arrangement. Men, that's an act of war in the ancient Near Eastern world. He has publicly humiliated, publicly insulted David's ambassadors, and therefore David, and he has also, in those public acts, he's broken the treaty. He's broken the, broken the covenant agreement. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. I explained why. And he said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now, you know, Jericho is just right across the Jordan River. So I'll just be, here's, here's the Ammonite. Jericho is right. So they cross the Jericho, the river, and stay in Jericho till their beards come back and so on. So now what David, as I mentioned just a second ago, I mean, technically, man, this is an act of war. So what is David going to do? Is he going to let him get away with this? He's broken the treaty. His acts are a, a clear act. I'm breaking the treaty. So when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to the, I love that he has to be correct. They're translating that correctly. That's Hebrew euphemism for David is really upset. They're a stench. And what do you do with the stench? You got to you got to get to the source and get rid of what's causing the rotten smell. The Ammonites sent and hired. So how are the Ammonites going to prepare? Because they know now. Hanun isn't dumb. He knows what he's done. Knows what he's done. He's broken the treaty. He knows David is not going to let him get away with this. So what does he do? He goes out and hires 33,000 mercenaries. Where does he get the mercenaries? And you can look on the map. They're on the map. But they're all from they're all from the area of the Aramaeans, the, Aramean, the, the northern, the Syrian area. So he's going to hire from a variety of groups. He's going to hire mercenaries. And the text tells us the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob, the Syrians of Zobah, the king of Ma'aka, and the men of Tob. 20,000, 1,000, 12,000. He now has his own army, Hanun, the Ammonites, plus he's hired 33,000 mercenaries. He knows what David's going to do. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and a host of the mighty men. That's, a, again, a Hebrew euphemism of a, a good chunk of his army. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in a battle array at the entrance of the gate. The entrance of the gate of what? And here you have to go to the map if you're interested. It's Ramah. It's right here. It, it, today, it would be what you and I know as uh, the capital of Jordan is Amman, Jordan. Have you ever heard of that in Amman, Jordan? Amman is built on the uh, the ruins of, of this city, Rahab, which was the key capital city of Ammonite. So 
they are all at the entrance of the gate of Rama. R-A-B-B-A-H is usually how it's spelled at this time. So what, what does that mean? They are there to defend your capital city. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rahab, the men of Tob, the Ma'aka, are themselves in the open country. So Hanun's army is at the gate, and the 33,000 mercenaries are surrounding the city as a defensive protection. They know what David's going to do. When Joab saw that the battle was against him, both in the front and the rear, front, he's, he's facing the Ammonites near the gate, and to the back of him are these mercenaries. Joab's army, in effect, is trapped. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. Who are they? They're the mercenaries. So Joab detected the... The, the specific tactics and numbers, the Bible doesn't say. But he took the best men of the army and said, you guys deal with these mercenaries. The rest of his men, he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. Where are they? They're protecting the gate of the city of Rabbah, the capital city of the Ammonite kingdom. So Joab divides the army. One half the army, you guys deal with the mercenaries. The rest, you deal with the Ammonites at the gate of the city. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people, there again, that's a wonderful statement of faith and trust from Joab, the commander-in-chief. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and Ian and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they'd been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had an easier scent and brought the Syrians who were behind the Euphrates. They came to Helam. And you can see that on the map. Helam is right here. Here's Rabbah. Helam is right up here. It's on the east side of the Jordan River, right on the boundary of the Assyrian. Came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought him. The Assyrians fled before Israel. David killed of the Assyrians of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. That is an amazing victory. Joab's army, as he, one attacked the mercenaries, the other attacked the city. The remaining part of these mercenaries fight David again, and it's an amazing victory. Total victory. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadonesia saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel. They became subject to them. And the Assyrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. They broke the treaty. They broke the coalition. The Ammonites are alone. That sets us up for chapter 11. So I went through this rather quickly. I know I did, but it's very important. This war lasts for three years. What's summarized in the two paragraphs we read in about two minutes for three years, 993 to 990 BC. This is a very significant cluster of battles that we just summarized in two minutes. It was a very significant battle, but David has not yet neutralized the Ammonites. They've been defeated, but they're not neutralized. They're not under his control. 
That's what the next war is all about. These are called the Ammonite Wars. They're from 993 to 990 BC. This series of wars and battles has been going on. The end result positively for David was all of the Assyrian mercenaries have been defeated and all the areas of these make peace with David. They renegotiate their treaty arrangements. What's left is the Ammonites. They have not yet brought, been brought under uh, the complete control of David's armies. Okay? I, I was going kind of faster. I didn't have, I don't know why I was. I don't have to be going fast. Peggy always says, honey, why are you in such a hurry? You don't have an academic dean telling you must finish this course on such and such a date because final exams are due. So pardon me if I was going too fast. Are you with me? Anybody online got questions? Are we with me? We're with you. I'm tracking. I use that as an excuse to sip coffee, but you guys aren't letting me do it. All right. Chapter 11 now comes right in the middle of the Ammonite Wars. This is 992 B.C. The text just summarizes all this comes to an end. Now what the author does is he takes us back in the middle of this. The question that hovers over, where's David? Now we learn where David is. He's back home in Jerusalem. He's not with his men. He's not with his armies. He's not with Joah. Look at verse 1. It's condemnatory on the person of David. In the spring of the year, again, the year is 992 B.C. It's right in the middle of these Ammonite wars. After the rains were over, when kings go to battle. Now, to, to the degree we do some of that, we think about that today that way. If you've been watching the horror of the Ukrainian conflict during, during the winter, there's fighting. But everybody's talking about when spring comes, we're going to see a lot more activity. You know, that's when the, the, the snow's over, the ground thaws, the mud's over. That's kind of where we're at. Winter's over. This is, is spring. Things are mild. That's when they start their battles again. Because in the Middle East, it rains. In, in this part of the Middle East, it rains from about November to about February. Then the rest of the year, you hardly have any rain at all. Hardly any. You know, I've been to Israel quite a few times in my life. I was there once in November, it rained. I was there in February once it rained. Every other trip I was there, it was May or June or October or September, whatever, never rained. You'd go 14 days, never see any rain, just sun all the time. So that's what it's telling us. This is when the sun comes out, the rains are over, and the, the, the mud's all cleared out. Now you go back to battle. When kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Remember, that's the capital city. We, we talked about that in the summary of the Ammonite Wars in the previous chapter. And then there's a separate sentence at the end of verse 1. What's that sentence? But David remained at Jerusalem. This verse is not being very kind to David. Something's wrong here when you read that. 
something's amiss here. And it's a clear contrast. The contrast is between David's sends Joseph, Joab and his servants to go to battle. David is at home drinking Starbucks coffee and watching, well, you fill in the blank, whatever you would watch. I don't know what he would watch. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a remarkable, there's something unsettling about this. And you read it, you say, well, this isn't like David. This isn't what we read about David. He was, he was watching Bathsheba. Well, that's what we're going to read about in verse 2. You're right. <laughs> but the text, it, it's unsettling a little bit because, and, and I think you agree with that, everything we read about David in all the previous chapters since he was introduced way back in the middle of 1 Samuel, this isn't like David. He never shirks. He's always, he's always leading his men, whether they're being chased by Saul in, in, in Gedi and the, the, the wilderness of Judah, or he's he's always proactive. He's always trying to be decisive, even when he makes stupid mistakes. But he's in Jerusalem, and his men are fighting this very, very important battle. So, Jim, give us a custom. And when uh, the king's men go to battle, what is the king normally position himself? So. He's there. I mean, in major battles like this, it doesn't mean he's you know, leading the army and right in front of it or heading into the wall, but he's there. I mean, typically they're observing the battle. They're with the battle. At night they'd be with the men, encouraging them and that kind of thing. So it's, it's really out of character for David. This is not and he's also failed. Well, we've been so successful all the way, and Joab can handle this little. And he's because he's very capable commander in chief. I mean, all of those all things are. Yeah, it's it it could be part it could be part of that. I mean, it's absolutely. And he had great confidence in Joab, even though he had some distrust of him and some of the things he did. But yeah, he was. Joab can handle this. It's just. It's out of character for David. He's using the center things. He's using the leader, not here. It could be Chuck because of how the confidence he had in Job and all the things that they had been successful with. Okay, I can kick back now. But the problem is, David had a character flaw. And we saw little hints of it throughout his life. That character flaw was women. And when he saw a woman he liked, he took her. As we read last week, this is one of the this is one of the problems with David. He unlike so many other areas of his kingship, he was not like a typical ancient New Eastern king. But in this area he was. He had a harem. What about that? I think it was last week, didn't it? Did we read that? He had a harem. And so David, the Bible makes no ethical comment at that point. But it's about to make an ethical comment. This character flaw is going to do David in. And it's going to be devastating for the kingdom. And it's going to be horrific for his family. 
because David, not being what he should be as the leader with his men, Satan will use that opportunity to hit where David was most vulnerable. Satan will tempt him, and he will fall head over heels for this woman. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, we, we are most of us are grandfather, that, that our role as is gone. Our role as a father, grandfather, whatever, still continues to be um, an example. That's what we have to weigh to our children and our children's children. Sure. So that they they have a guidepost or not that we're perfect. Obviously we're not. <laughs> no one in this room is perfect. But that our responsibility still remains, even though our family, media family is gone from our home that still can influence our children. Absolutely. Our, Absolutely. Children. our responsibility never ends till the day we die. That's right. And uh, that, that becomes important. This is where, this is we will see in, in these weeks that follow when we start to see the tragic consequences <coughs> of David's sin. Every single one of his family will be affected by this. And a major part of his kingdom. It's going to result in a civil war. It's going to rip the kingdom apart because of this one night of pleasure. It's utterly devastating. Now, I only have a few minutes, but let me, let me, because I think we'll just be able to get the stage set for this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, again, if, if you're interested in this, I get, we talked about this last week. I, I think I can show you this, even you guys that are online there. Here's this, I'll give you this, this is on page 13 of your, of your packet. Anyway, David's palace is here on the northwestern corner of the city of David, okay? Now, remember, we're 2,500 feet above sea level. This is, <laughs> this is literally... I mean, I've stood there. I know exactly where this is. He's right here, and he's looking down, and he can see everything. He's looking down. And across the Kidron Valley is a little village. Today, that village is called Silwan. But then, this, this is where a lot of the residents have lived outside the wall. This is where they live. And so what does he see? So he's up here, northwestern corner of that high area where he built his palace. And the text, what does the text say? He's on the roof of the king's house. So he's the highest place you can be in the city of David. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, that Hebrew word that's translated bathing is a bit unfortunate because you think that the way you and I think of bathing, you know, something you take a shower or whatever in the morning. This has this isn't really the, the point. This is Leviticus 15. <clears throat> she has just finished her menstrual cycle. She
she's now engaging in the ceremony of ritual purification. And David sees that. And it would have meant, I mean, I don't think I have to explain it, just use your imagination. She's virtually naked as she's ritually purifying herself. Now, I'm offended by this because, well, blaming Bathsheba. She, She shouldn't have been doing that. Don't practice misogyny and blame her. David's the one to blame because she was not doing something unusual. What is unusual, she's beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this Bathsheba? Is not this Bathsheba, the son of Elihim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite was known by David. He was one of David's top military leaders. He is a Hittite, which means that he has been brought into the kingdom as a mercenary. He's not a Jew, he's a Hittite. And he was was a top-notch commander, devoted to the Lord, devoted to Yahweh. And that's going to be the contrast in this chapter between David and Uriah. So David knows who she is. He knows she is the wife of one of his top crackerjack military guys, officers. So what should David have done immediately? Oh, my goodness. I lust after that woman, but I can't take her. That's not what he does. He knowingly, willfully, intentionally gives in to his lust. Jim, at this point, if he was aligned with God, he could have said, God help me. What did Joseph do? He was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He ran. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? Flee immorality. David knew what he should have done. And it is telling, and that's why verse 3 is so important, it is telling that he knew who she was. And he knew that she was the wife of one of his top-notch warriors. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. That Hebrew euphemism is he had sexual intercourse with her. Now remember, and I, I, I have a couple of seconds here, but he is the king, and he's ordering her to come to him. Now the Bible, this is the Bible just doesn't have anything. The Bible does not tell us anything about her reaction. Doesn't tell us anything about any resistance. We just don't know. All the Bible says is he ordered her to come. He took her, and they had sexual intercourse. The importance, I like how the ESV does this. In the middle of verse 4, they put this in parenthesis, which helps us to understand the nature of this bathing. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She had just finished her menstrual cycle. You go back to Leviticus 15, it explains what they're supposed to do and all that. That's what she was doing. So she was not displaying herself for the king. That's not what she was doing. The Bible's trying to make it very clear what she was doing, why she was doing it. And David sees her and lusts after her, as he had done before. He sees a woman that he likes, he takes her. But this is different. 
This isn't Nabal, the fool who had a heart attack and died, and then David took Abigail and remember his wife. Nabal was dead. This isn't the same situation. This isn't this isn't um, um, Micaiah, his uh, the daughter of Saul, whom he had married and, and paid the blood price and the dowry for. She was legitimate wife. This isn't that. This is a situation of adultery. This is a situation of giving into your lust. This is defying the God that he served. He is the shepherd king of Israel. He has no right to do this, even though he has the power of the king and can order a woman to come to his bed. He has no right to do this. Did she have to go? I'm sorry? Did she have to go? He's the king. Did she have no? I mean, if, if she just said, I'm not going there, I know what he wants, I'm not interested. The Bible is silent on this. I mean, it really is. I could she have said no? Theoretically. Well, she's still she's still an individual woman. Could she have said no? Different society, nothing like hers. What's that, Bill? A different society. Women can say no. Yeah. I don't think she had a good say. It's it's really hard to uh, it's really hard to try to capture the sense of what how powerful patriarchy was in the ancient world. I mean, honestly, a woman had absolutely no rights, had no protection at all. I mean, I, I don't a woman. We read about today of men objectifying women. You know what I mean by that? Women's like an object. You treat her just for your own personal pleasure and then discard her. That's very offensive in our culture. Praise God it is. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. And it's, um, it's, it's just, it's very difficult to envision how subjected women were. And yeah, we use the word misogyny a lot in our culture today. That is really, really part of the ancient Israel world, even among even among Israel. God did not want them to be like that, but they were. And they were they were not to be like that, but tragically <laughs> were. So David, instead of everything that everything we've seen in the character of David, grace and mercy and compassion, his lust. Is overcoming all of that because, and this is how I put it when we started this, he has a character flaw, and Satan is a student of our character flaws. And when he sees that at just the right moment, he will attack, and that's what he did here with with David. So I'm going to throw a bit of medical physiology <laughs> into this. So when a woman has her menses, then in about two weeks. Later, she'll ovulate and be able to be impregnated. So, what happened when he saw her cleansing herself? So, she they had intercourse. It was about a two week period of time. So, David just he had time to think about this 
a lot. Good. And, That's a good point. And um, and and, did, and supposed to come to Satan and his lust, you know. But it, was, it wasn't it wasn't he saw her and said, Hey, come over tonight. It, it was over about a two week period of time. Yeah. It's it's just it's such a it's just a horrific situation when so far everything we know about David that he could let this happen. Who oh, he is, he's the shepherd king of Israel. Anointed by God. Phenomenal promises God has made to him an eternal throne, dynasty, and kingdom. He's walked with God and he wrote all those Psalms. Now, some will be written later as, as we know, but but at this moment, listen, I define sin. I define the attitude that produces sin with the conviction I alone am the exception. I can get away with this. That had to be part David. You say, how could he do this? Because, again, the text is very clear. He knew who this woman was. She wasn't some prostitute off the street that he'd never have anything to do with. This is the wife of one of his crackerjack warriors. He knew him. The woman conceived and sent David and told David, I am pregnant. I'm out of time. Pick up with verse 6 next week. Now David engages in one year of cover-up. As he tries to cover this up. As my mother used to tell me when I was a little boy and just a real rascal, Jimmy, be sure your sins will find you out. And that's when I was doing dumb little things, but my mom was saying something profoundly true in terms of the theology of the Bible. This is, a, it's just, it, honestly, I hope I'm trying to capture that. This is unimaginable tragedy. How could David do this? Because he had a character flaw. And the evil one is a student. He knows our weakness. And if we don't have the form of God on, he will successfully. And that's exactly what happens. i got to pray because I've got to get out of here. Oh, goodness, Lord, we're, we're struck at the heart as we see what David did. But it's a reminder, and I think it is, at least to me, I hope it is to all these guys, we have to be so on our guard because we all have character flaws. We all have weaknesses. And Satan can exploit those. And if we don't have the full armor on, we can give in. And that is obviously David in this tragic situation. His lust overcame everything he knew about you, everything he knew about your law, everything he knew about your character, everything he knew about his responsibilities as shepherd king of Israel, and gave in to that lust. And as we'll study next week, he engages in a master-minded cover-up. Oh, Lord, deliver us from that. Help us to be wise and careful, to, to be intentional in dealing with those flaws, to deal with our sin. Do not let this happen to us. Guard us and protect us. Keep us safe. Keep us pure. Keep us intentionally focused on you and dependent on you. So I pray for each one of these men here in the room as well as online. Lord, may we be the men of faith and men of righteousness you're calling us to. Protect us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.